Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. This is our Valentine's Day episode. Or as priests in my high school used to say, and correct me, St. Valentine's Day. Okay. <laughs> Just teacher, <laughs> priest, correcting me on the correct nomenclature yeah, yeah. for this holiday. The point is in the modern world, Tim, most of us are celebrating loving relationships on this day. And not just if you're in the United States. Valentine's Day is also celebrated in Great Britain, Canada, Australia, all English-speaking countries, by the way, Argentina, not an English-speaking country, France, Mexico, and South Korea, just to name a few. Not an English-speaking country, just... To add to that. Okay, Dr. Trivia, nicely done. <clears throat> but uh, before we get to our conversation with our guest today, which is all about celebrating loving relationships, I want to remind our listeners that we're launching a five-part podcast series on the history of behavioral economics, and it's called They Thought We Were Ridiculous. And we are ridiculous, but that's not it's not about us. It was about them. And all five episodes will land in your feed on Monday morning, February 26, 2024. And these five episodes are historic. They are the first time that the history of behavioral economics has been memorialized in podcast form. I don't know, Tim. I think that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I like it. And Kurt and I co-produced this series with Andy Luttrell of the Opinion Science Podcast. And if you are not listening to Opinion Science, you should. It's a terrific podcast for psychological and sociological insights. Uh, That it is. And the series covers the field from its foundations in the 1980s when Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman and his partner Amos Tversky started asking why people make predictable errors in their decision-making to the present day when researchers are using these insights to help people make better financial decisions. And it's not just a bunch of blah, 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 blah. It could have been, but it wasn't. No, Andy and Tim, and a little bit of me, I produced it so that it would entertain, be entertaining to listen to. And of course, you'll have to be the judge of that. But we want you to know that we didn't want it to be boring. Yeah. As my kids would say, right? Well said. So please, if you would, check it out, listen to it yourself when it comes out, share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your behavioral science geek buddies, share it with everybody, share it on your social media sites, sing it from the tops of the mountaintops wearing a plaid flannel shirt if you want to. Just like you're wearing today. You need to go to the mountaintops and start singing, I'm, Mr. Hulan. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm totally ready today. Although it, it, it does sound oddly specific and a little <laughs> dramatic. I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to give somebody an image, okay? All right, you get the picture. But put three, we put three years into the research, the interviews, the script writing, the fact checking, the recording, the production of the series. And if you can't tell, we're kind of proud of it. And we hope you check it out and share. I think you will enjoy it. Yeah, well said, Kurt. Okay, now let's turn back to our St. Valentine's Day episode and our guest for the episode, Topaz Adizas. Yeah. Topaz is the author of a new book called 12 Questions for Love, A Guide to Intimate Conversations and Deeper Relationships. 
honestly, at first, I have to say, Tim, I don't, I, I wasn't too excited about doing this. But when we looked into the book, uh, we could see that he's really an accidental behavioral scientist. He's a guy who really understands a lot about the human condition, but doesn't use all the psychological vernacular to express it. Yeah. So we talked to Topaz about his new book and a little bit about his previous book, which is called The And. And we focused on things that will help make our loving relationships deeper and more successful. And it starts with asking more well-constructed questions and then listening to the answers with your whole body. Yeah. Topaz also stresses the importance for creating a space for your conversations, those deep conversations, right? There's a space for everything in our life. Like we don't sleep in the kitchen. Well, you know. Okay. Most of us don't. All right. We don't make dinner in the bathroom. And again, you know. Most, all, right. Yeah. all right. It's important to create a space for a loving conversation that can deepen your relationship. And here's a pro tip. Probably not best to try to have it the minute you walk in the door from a long day's work. Good call. Uh, okay, so while there are some things that we might consider intuitive, the science behind them is solid. And we hope that you'll enjoy our grooming session where Kurt and I are going to add some science to Topaz's observations. And by the way, we want to let you know that there is some salty language in this episode. So if you've got someone nearby with sensitive ears, we encourage you to listen respectfully and in a way that doesn't disturb them. Yeah, like put your hands over their ears when the salty stuff comes <laughs> up, right? Is that how that works? Of course. <laughs> All right. With that, we invite you to sit back and relax in a very lovely space that you've carved out for listening to this Behavioral Grooves episode and pour yourself a nice cup of agenda-less questions and hope you enjoy our conversation with Topaz. Topaz Adizas, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are so excited to have you here. We've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, but we have to find out first do you prefer bicycle or unicycle? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that one. Because I was like, if they're bringing me coffee and tea, I want to be no. um, bicycle. And no, well, I have to go bicycle because I, I don't know how to do the unicycle. Never so, tried a unicycle? No, just too, I don't okay. know. I, you know, that's a great. I got to put that on my list now. Things to do. <laughs> but I'll go with the bicycle. I remember when I lived in Sweden some 20 some years ago, and my biggest challenge was biking to work without touching the handle rails. Oh. That was like my pride and joy after, because I would buy, I just came back from Sweden last week. And so I remembered as I was walking through the town, like, wow, I used to bike all the way from home to work, which was basically through the whole town of Malmo, southern Sweden without touching the handlebars. And that was something that I, I prided myself on, you know, in the snow. And, and, and so, you yeah. Are, you, are, you are like my son who uh, we go for a bike ride and it's like, dude, just put your hands down. It's like, oh, <laughs> no, hands out. So maybe the answer for me is riding unicycle on a bicycle. <laughs> hands up. That's maybe that's Hands that's free on a bicycle. I like that. Yeah. I like that. All right. Yeah. If you've got the ability to balance that well, you unicycle might not be that big of a throw, right? For you. Yeah, maybe just a mental block of just being afraid of being like, yeah. 
It's just different. Well, it's yeah. different. You got to buy a bike and or, or rent a bike or figure out somewhere to ride a unicycle. It's not easy. Who came All up? Right. Who came up with that either or one? Who, whose idea was no, that? We, we those. That's an old one. Uh, oh, that's, that's an old from one. The archives. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And now you mentioned this coffee tea thing already, but uh, we're gonna go there because it's it is the common you know behavior group speed round question. Are, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Clearly, coffee. I Clearly. don't even. And I think you had a wonderful lady uh, with a French accent. What's her name? Michelle Lamoni, or she? Oh, I, I love. Yeah. I loved how she said. Uh, and I. And then that made me think. Yeah, coffee in the morning, but de- like a nice herbal tea at the end of the day. At there the end of go. the night, that's always oh. puts me to bed. It's nice. So I do have the tea at the very end of the day when I speak to my wife and we kind of download from the day. It's always with tea and a nice dose of honey. Oh, I like that. I like that. I like the sound of that too. Yeah. That's um, that, that's a good model. Okay, next speed round question. True or false, asking good questions is the key to learning about the people we care about. false true in the sense that what's key is A, creating the space, and B, I don't like using the term good questions because what's good or bad, it's more of well-constructed questions. Oh. So for me, it's the space and well-constructed questions. That That is key to... Exploring I'm going the relationships. Yeah, we're going to dig into that space question and and, and different mm-hmm. pieces about that. But the last speed round question, again, going back to relationships, because that's what we're going to talk about here today, right? Can you deepen relationships just by asking questions? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. Oh. I mean, you, I love how these last two always come about the person's work. So thank you. But <laughs> without without a doubt, and that actually leads to you know, one take home tip I'll just say from the start of our show is one thing I've learned from 10 years of holding the space for over 1200 pairs that have these intimate cathartic conversations is stop looking for answers, Mm. create better questions, create better questions. Like we put so much energy into looking for answers. What's the answer? What's the answer? Instead of, well, what's the question that we're pursuing? That's a big one. So I think that would be first take home values. Stop looking for answers put all your energy into creating better questions and then the answers become obvious, simple, and actually more empowering. Oh, I, that is, that is fantastic. Topaz. want to go back to what you talked about for space, this idea of creating space. Can you expand on that for us? Because I think that's a really interesting take. It's not about good questions. It's the, it's the space that you create. Help us understand that. Yeah. So I'll just use a very simple example that I, I, it's like my go-to example, which is quite simple, is that if your partner comes to you this evening, says, Kurt, Tim, why do you love me? You're going to be wondering not why you love your partner. You'll be wondering why the fuck are they asking this question <laughs> exactly. when you're washing I- the dishes? You know, like, what happened? Where, where is this coming from? And so you're not actually in the space to answer that question, and they're not in the space to receive because you're, you're where is this coming from? Oftentimes when we need to have well, there's, two, you know, if we create the space, like we have a box of questions that we sell through the Skin Deep, right? Where, oh, we're playing a game. And now we pull out a question while we're playing a game. And the question says, Kurt, Tim, why do you love me? Oh, we already know why I just asked you that question. Because yeah. we're playing a game and I pulled out a random question. So the space has been created for A, you to answer it freely. You're not wondering mm-hmm. what the context is or what the intention is. and I am there to receive. And so how often in our regular day-to-day lives do we create the space to have a fun, cathartic, vulnerable, courageous, exploratory conversation? Yeah. 
And I think we, there are spaces in our homes that we do certain things, right? You don't cook meals in your kitchen bathroom, right? right? You don't well, sleep in the bathroom, right? I'm, well, Tim sometimes sleeps in the bathroom, but that's a whole weird <laughs> thing that we won't go. We won't go I mean, there. You know, but I say there's certain spaces for certain things to happen. So in what spaces do we create exploration of our relationships? That frankly, which is also ironic, is that oftentimes we take our closest relationships for granted. Those are the ones we actually take for granted because like, you know, as this book has come out, I, one of the responses I get from some friends, you know, text like, oh, thanks, I'll read the book. But, you know, I know everything I have to know about my husband. We've been together for 15, 20 years. <laughs> and it's oh, actually, w- w- you're taking for granted the fact that maybe you, maybe you know the love and commitment is there, but you don't actually know what the changes and the learnings and the growth that he or she is going through or that you're going through. Are you telling me that you're the same person you were 15 years ago? Yeah. No, let's not take things for granted. Let's explore each other. And that is this, there's this, um, the relationships in our life are, rich nutrients for us to explore. And so how do we do that? Create the space. Create the space so that you can actually explore it without feeling attacked, without an agenda, without you questioning why you're being asked that question. Create the space so that you can give and receive. I'm so glad that you teed up with the, why do you love me? Because that was like, which is number 12, question number 12 in the book. But uh, yeah. I, it, it was like, I don't know, it's, it's buried in here because that has, was burning for me. Like that, well, if you're not in the right space to ask that question, why do you love me? Mm-hmm. It's like a nuclear bomb. I could just imagine it. So thank you for for just going right there. I, I want to get back to this difference between seeking answers and seeking well-constructed questions. Can you walk through that? I, w- I want listeners to have a, a better feel for, well, of course, I want to ask, you know, well-constructed questions, but mm. gosh, you know, God damn it, I want to find an answer. Right. You know, I, I, I'm asking it to get this. Yeah. Help us understand the nuance of the difference. So I think, well, let's start with this. If, are you in a space that you want to explore your relationship? And by that, you mean you're not coming at it with an agenda. Sometimes, are you coming to the conversation with your partner that you want to solve something or that you want them to change or that you want them to say something? Then you have an agenda. Then you have a, that's not the conversation that I'm offering you here. What I'm offering you here is a space to explore and discover new things. And also to unearth maybe points of vulnerability and you know, points of connection that you haven't touched on before, that you didn't know were there, or that you did know, but you needed to be reminded of. That's kind of what I'm offering in this book. And I think that the key is the space. The key is also well-constructed questions. What does that mean? If you ask the question, why do we fight so much? Well, okay, is that a really well-constructed question? Well, your brain you know, is built to give you answers. It's like a dog that chases the stick. You throw the stick, the dog's going to chase the stick, regardless of where you throw the stick. The question is where you're throwing the stick, right? So why are we throwing that stick into a pond? Why do we fight so much? I'll give you a whole list of why we fight so much. But wait, what if we change the question? What if we throw the stick to the grassy knoll, which is, what is our biggest challenge right now? And what do you think it's teaching us? All of a sudden, you're reshaping why are we fighting into like a challenge? And you're positioning as like, what is it teaching us? You're positioning these obstacles that we have as an opportunity to learn. Another question could be, you know, versus how does conflict make us better? There's another way of shaping why do we fight so much is how does our conflict make us better? You're repositioning the fact that you're fighting into something that's more empowering, that gives you more agency, that puts 
the underlying of the questions that we're on the same page and we're growing together. Yeah. It, you don't it, get that in the form of question. In the book, you use this example, and I might misquote this, but it was, mm -hmm. uh, why is this shit happening to me to... Uh, what can I mm -hmm. learn from the shit that is happening, right? Yeah. And how is this shit becoming the fertilizer for who I'm going to become? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and, <laughs> yeah. I, and I like that. And it's about framing. It's about putting that that frame around the question. And and it's interesting because part of where my head went when I was reading that is I go, oh, you know, Topaz, this is great, but man, in the heat of the moment to try to, you know, if you're having those those conversations it's really hard to sometimes get out of your brain to reframe it in a way that, like you said, throw the stick to the grassy knoll, not into the middle of the pond because we can't yeah. go there. Um, yeah. But with that, and, and I think part of it is exactly what we've already been talking about is, is setting up the space and setting up this, this is a conversation to talk about these important things as opposed to in the moment of heat of an argument and we're starting to you know ask questions and various different things. But can you help us understand maybe how people can go about thinking how to reframe those questions or what are some tips or, or hints that you might have gleaned from your you know, experience with us? So I think first thing that comes up for me, that's a great question. Thank you. Kurt. I think slow down, number one, mm. slow down. When we are, that's number one. Number two, let's delineate or make a distinction between discomfort and safety. Okay. Right? If you look at your life, oftentimes where you grow the most is where you face the most discomfort. Look at your greatest achievement. I promise you a day, an hour, five minutes, or a month before, you were nervous wreck. You didn't know if you could accomplish that. Then when you accomplish it, you feel jovial, feel proud. You feel ecstatic. Why? Because you overcame that discomfort. You overcame that challenge. So when you feel uncomfortable, that's actually a good thing. I have a line, which is the path to growth is lit by your fears. It's lit by discomfort. Pursue them wherever they appear. Mm. But let's not confuse discomfort with safety. And some people say, oh, this is uncomfortable. Therefore, it's not safe. Is it? What is safe? Safe is, safe is when you feel like, I know that at the core of our, this relationship, there's a mutual trust, there's a respect. We want to deepen our relationship mutually. We want to experience more of each other and more of life uh, through each other. And there's, you know, versus... Discomfort, like I know I have that as a base level, but now that I feel uncomfortable, that's okay. And that's good. Now, when you feel uncomfortable, don't speed up, which is a natural thing we all do, right? It's uncomfortable. Let's get through this fast, which is actually more challenging. Yeah. What we need to do is slow down. And maybe in the heat of, you know, I heard Esther Perel on a podcast a few weeks ago, and she says a great reframe of a question. Is it why, why are we fighting? What are we fighting for? Mm. Or it was, what are we fighting about was a question. And she reframed it as, what are we fighting for? So in the midst, of, what if in the midst of an argument, you're like, you stop and go, wait, wait. Okay, what are we fighting about? We're fighting this. What, we, what if we just switch it? Let's just change the conversation to what are we fighting for? What if we switch it to, ooh, what, how, is this how is this an opportunity for us to deepen our connection right now? Yeah. You know, what is it you think that is making me uncomfortable in this conversation? Yeah. Put, put the other person in your shoes. So slowing down is number one and not being afraid or pushing away the discomfort. Because another nugget that comes up for me is just like an image is worth a thousand words, an emotion is worth a thousand thoughts. Mm. We could spend time describing an image with a thousand words. 
We could spend time going through a emo- like thoughts and, oh, what about this? What Instead of actually feeling the emotion. And when an emotion comes, you basically have two options. Stop it. You don't want to feel it. Push it away. Or you let it in. And once you let it in, you can then let it go. And by letting it in, all those thousand thoughts you could be thinking about, which is basically pushing it out, just let it in, breathe through it, and then you'll be able to let it out. Right. And, and that I think is a key part of a relationship. And I don't mean just romantic, I mean any type of intimacy is that we don't need to come to a solution all the time. We don't have to come to convince the other person. We can actually just sit in an emotion, process it, breathe through it, let it out. And that can then lead to a resolution down the line, it can put you in a different position. We don't have to solve everything. We don't have to have an answer for everything because sometimes by doing that, in that effort, it's actually pushing the emotion away. In that slowing down, you emphasize in the book about deep listening yeah, and this importance of deep listening. And I was wondering if you could share just some of your thoughts of what, what are the key components of really deep listening? What really differentiates deep listening from, yeah, I hear you. From what Tim does every day. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I, I feel that oftentimes in our day-to-day lives, we are listening to respond. Someone is speaking and you're thinking about, okay, how am I going to respond to this to A, make myself look intelligent, to B, win the argument, to be right, to make them feel comfortable, whatever it is. We are thinking with our heads, shall we say. But let's bring that, let's remove that. And by deep listening, I mean, let's bring into the body because the body is a repository of emotional memories, right? The body is the hardware for the software that runs through our system. So let us hear it with the whole body. Which another says like, listen with your body, listen with your intuition. Your body can be an indicator for the intuition. It's like a physicalization of your intuition. Am I am st- comfortable in my chest, stomach, lower back, sh- shoulders? What is coming up for me? Not from the mind in order for me to respond for whatever agenda I have, or but what is coming up for me? It's almost like you're an antenna for the universe, if you will. I mean, I know that sounds metaphysical or wooey wooey, but what I'm saying is. When you're in conversation, maybe your relationship is there that is a conduit for something greater. And your ability to tap into what that greater message is, is by you listening to the antenna of your body, right? And that's what I mean by deep listening is not thinking with the brain, but thinking with the body, thinking with the heart, thinking with your intuition and seeing what comes up and speaks up. So a good way to do that is when you're taking information, if you notice yourself already coming up with a response, breathe through it. If you notice yourself getting tense, notice that anxiety and the tension, breathe through it. And then when you're going to respond, take a pause, take a breath, and then follow whatever that intuition is, whatever that voice is, whatever that resonates in you to respond. So maybe sometimes to say, you know, what I think, you, you know, in response to thinking, say, you know, what comes up for me as a feeling in response is this. Mm. That also gives you room, it's not an exact objective truth. You're like, this is what I feel right now. Yeah. And let me play that back. And that's a different kind of conversation. And also gives the other person a sense of being heard. Yeah. Right? So Topaz, it's, it's interesting that you talk about that getting out of your head and getting into your body. We just interviewed Norman Farb and Zindel Segal last week, who wrote a book called Better in Every Sense, where it is about really digging into all of our senses and being able to, uh, take note of those. And what I'm hearing you say, and maybe if, uh, correct me if I'm, I'm misconstruing this, 
is that deep listening is really, it's not just about listening through our ears. It is about kind of paying attention to the body responses that we have from our internal components to all of those senses that we have in our body, being able to then comprehend what people are saying to get at that deeper level. Am I, am I yeah, there? I think, yes, absolutely. And also what comes up for me is if you're paying attention to your breath and your from what the other person is saying in your body, you're even more fully present. Mm-hmm. And when you're more fully present, you're bringing more of yourself or things to the conversation. Because uh, the other thing is, oftentimes we fall, we fall into these scripts. Yeah. We're in these scripts. We're in these societal programming that we're not even aware of, these cultural mantras that kind of we repeat. And sometimes we're having a conversation that is, it's a script. Yeah, you know that we're practiced at, and 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 so how do we how do we actually avoid new grooves, right? Of like in terms of the mental in our brains, new grooves. How do we create new connections? Is we have we we listen to different parts of our body, we respond in a different manner, right? And where does that come from? Like slowing down, listening to the body. You know what come what I feel is this. What comes up for me now is this. Instead of I think this and I'm responding, because then we're on the higher cognitive level of the existing scripts and patterns that exist. How do we find new grooves is by listening to a different part of the, of your presence. Yeah. I, I, I love the conversation. That. The difference between being an actor and playing Shakespeare and re- reciting the, the lines exactly as they're said versus improv, where you have to pay attention to what's going on in the moment, be present. And then, you know, every single time is different, but you're there. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's I'm, I'm curious about what got you here. There, there's a lot of work that you did prior to getting to 12 Questions for Love. And what was the impetus for writing this? I, I guess it's a two-part question. What's the, what's the journey that leads you to these observations? And then what's the, obs- what's the impetus to actually write 12 Questions? So 12 Questions for Love is a book based on my experience, my team's experience of 10 years of holding space for over 1,200 conversations in which we had participants of all kinds of relationships everything you can imagine, facing each other with questions that we would present and they would have a conversation. We'd film it with three cameras. So basically a wide shot and two close-ups so that you're always seeing both faces at the same time. And what I think is beautiful about that is that we're elevating listening on the same level of speaking. Most of our media these days, if you watch any TV or anything, or even social media, you're always seeing the person talking. Yeah. When do you see the person listening? And for us, it's, oh, it's at the same time. It's a bi-panel. You see both at the same time. And frankly, these days, I think we need to listen more than talk. And I think that's why I think this format is beautiful. One of them, but it creates a space between. And that's what the and is about. Because the and is, and I'm giving you a long answer because I want the audience to understand who is this guy and why does he have any value offering? My value offering comes from holding the space for 10 years of doing the and. And the and speaks about the space between, which is a relationship, not you or me. It's not us or them. It's you and I, us and them. It's the and that connects us. So by filming with three cameras, by always at minimal having a bi-panel where you see both people's face at the same time, you get a sense of what connects them. You get the sense of the space between. You get a sense of it's not just what they're saying. It's like, what's the feeling that's between them? And I was brought, you know, how did I find my way? And so 12 Questions for Love is, you know, the learnings, distillation of how does what what have I learned from doing this for ten years? What are the, what makes a powerful, well constructed question? How's the space? What what have I learned about relationships from doing this? 
And so that's what's in the book. And it's a blueprint, it's a manuscript. It's a, not a manuscript, I'm sorry. It's a, <laughs> it's a guidebook for people to bring that into their own lives. What brought me into this space was that at a very young age, I remember my parents fighting as a divorce, right? I had a brother who was 15 months younger. So I was the big brother. I don't have a memory. I have one memory of my parents being happy together. And so the rest was fighting. So that kind of woke me up at a very young age to like what's happening here and trying to manage the space and also protect my brother. And I think a core question, and that's in the book, was just where is the space of connection? You know, and also my lack of connection to my parents. I mean, they're wonderful parents and good relationship, but through my childhood, it was, there was a lack of connection and lack of intimacy. And so I went to search that in the form of a camera and documenting and speaking to people as a filmmaker. Yeah. I did that for 15, 18, 20 years. Then I transitioned into this project, which is the end, which is um, exploring the space between and creating the space for humans to be humans. And what can we learn from that? I find it really fascinating because in the book, you also talk about this process that you went through to get here, right? And you talk about honing these questions that, yeah. that as part of this, you, you started off with this idea, but then as you got into it and you started seeing this and you realized this is how you construct these questions as you talked about before to get there. And so it isn't just, oh, here are the 12 questions that we started with and they've, they, we've just exactly. gone through the same. It has been a, a learning process. And with that, I think it's really interesting and Tim and I will probably groove on this a little bit is, is that you've uncovered a bunch of behavioral science elements within this. It's the human condition and this idea of framing questions and, and open-ended and you'd also talk about point of view and other things. And so- with that, was there a point where you got where it was like, oh, this is really powerful. Th mm. This is more than what I had anticipated. And, and this is something that I can dedicate 10 years plus of my life to. I f thank you for that question. I think for me, I stumbled into it. There was mm -hmm. a natural inclination because I've always been going back to I, with the camera, traveling, talking to people. I've always been interested in talking to people. I, when I was very young, I wanted to be someone like Charlie Rose or Oprah interviewing people. And I found that my camera was the way in. It was the bridge. It was a door opener. I show up with a camera, people talk, right? It's like, there's justification. It creates a space. Why are you asking me all these questions? Oh, you have a camera. Let's have a conversation, right? So, <laughs> and I think from day one, I remember when we first just did this test, let's just do this test and see what happens. And the camera, and then we saw, we said, oh my gosh, we struck, this is like, this is, there's magic here. This is beautiful. I remember looking at my editor at the time, Chris McNabb, and we would just looked at each other and said, wow, this is really beautiful. But my great gratitude and the magic that continues to reappear, it happened last, last production we had was what, three, two months ago? Boom. Again, in my 10th year, still, every time I'm on set, I'm just, so moved and shocked, not shocked in a negative way, but just unexpectedly, wow, there's so much magic in humanity, so much magic between us. And this is such a simple format and I'm so grateful for it. And my team and I feel responsible for it because it's a powerful format, but it's so simple. You can pretty much, there's as many stories of relationships as there are grains of sand on the beach. I can, it's not hard to cast these things because if you take anybody Put them together that have a relationship, not strangers, but relationship. And you ask them good questions or constructive questions in a, in a space that's conducive to that. You're going to have an incredible conversation. 
that reaffirms your sense of humanity. And what I mean by humanity is our sense that we are not alone, that there's a common thread that runs us through us, that makes us feel connected to one another and something greater. And that's through, in one way, is our ability to communicate our emotions and what we're going through, what we're feeling. So if there is as much variety in the human condition and the relationships and the kinds of questions that we might ask as there are grains of sand, What's the 13th question and the 14th question and the 15th? What didn't make it into the book? Was there, was there one that you're like, oh, God, this is a really good one. Uh, well, I think we better stick with 12. Yeah, right. <laughs> I went with 12 because, you know, this started as, as an experiment and then it was working. And then I deepened the experiments. Why is it working? And then the book was really the last examination yeah. of why does this thing work? Why has this really worked? What's really working about these questions? Why have I been the one to stumble into it? My team and I, what is, you know, so this is a constant learning. In the end of the book, we have a bunch of other questions that are for each because, because it's, it's, it is the questions well-constructed, but it's also the sequence mm-hmm. of questions, right? Yeah. Yes. Why do you love me? If I ask you that immediately, it's one answer. But if we actually have this conversation that starts off by examining our trust and our mutual love and respect and synergy that we've created, you know, with the first three questions. And then it starts going to the second three questions, which examines how we handle conflict and what is conflict and what are the underlying ceilings of conflict that's coming or whatnot. And then we go into the climax, which is, you know, what's the pain in me you wish you could heal and why? What's one experience you wish we never had and why? Those are kind of the climactic questions. And then we start landing the plane by offering gratitude, what we're learning from each other, and then asking questions that, you know, for example, why do you love me is a question that we don't often ask, but we should because we never know when the end's going to come and we should voice these important things. So when you have that sequence, when you get to why do you love me, because you've had this architecture and this journey that's built on trust and you've examined, you've stepped into discomfort by exploring your challenges and your vulnerabilities, that answer at the end is so much more powerful because you've had this journey. Yeah. So it's, it's the sequence of questions. And so at the end of the book, we place for each sequence, for each kind of section, additional questions to ask. And so there isn't really a 13 question. There's more questions. The ones that I'm playing with now are that, that recently I've been playing with is, you know, which is not, it's, this is not for a relationship, but the ones I'm playing with now are, you know, what's the truth you hate telling yourself? What's your favorite wow. lie? What's your favorite lie you love telling yourself? If you had, you know, if you had a, this is kind of more for an individual, but you know, you could ask, but you know, if you had a crystal ball, what's one question you'd never ask it? Oh, you know, oh. so yeah, that would, you know, if you had a crystal ball that told you the absolute truth, what's one question you'd never ask it? So I'm playing with, with these questions and I think, and much like you guys, you know, I know you both had different interpretations of grooves when you first came up with it, right? One is yeah. music, but the other one is, is the, um, grooves in the brain when you connect two different centers, right? Of thoughts. When you create a question, you're creating your almost neuroplasticity of the brain. Yeah. How does, you know, one question is what is making earning money? How does earning money, what does it cost you? Yeah. You know, it's a really fascinating piece because I think exactly what you're saying is this idea that the questions we ask if we keep asking the same questions, we, you know, regardless of if the answers change, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, to a certain degree, mm-hmm. it's it's this understanding of, 
am I asking the right questions for me? Am I asking the right questions for us to get, yeah. to peel away, to to find what is at, at that core groove of what we are and who we are and, and various different pieces. And um, I think it's really important to think that. And I think for our listeners, one of the things that I took away um, from this book, and I think if, you know, that, that they would as well, is this idea that questions can be powerful. And if we are really wanting to create, and, it, and to your point, uh, this is about relationships. It's not just romantic. This is about relationships with friends and family and others. And so this idea of, you know what? We too often just go through acting in this, this role of, well, here are the, here's the screenplay that I have to read. And here's the automatic response that I get and taking that to a different level. Sorry, I got on my, mm-hmm. my soapbox there. No, I'm with you on that. I think we, going back to stop looking for answers, create better questions. I don't think we realize how often we're answering questions. Mm. You wake up in the morning, the first mm. thought, oh shit, I got to do that today. Yeah. What, what, sorry, before that thought, there was a question. What do I have to do yeah. today? Yeah. We're always asking questions. You make a judgment, something, someone, oh, that guy, you know, I never liked that guy. Well, there was a question that you asked to give that answer. And we are so good at answers, we forget that we're asking questions. So what if we go to the source? What if we ask different questions? Yeah. And and I think, so we're never taught how to ask good questions. We don't. Why, why is that? Why, I, why is it so well, hard? I think because part of it is that we're, I think we take our relationships for granted. I think we, you know, I think there's also a flip side is that it's comfortable to take them for granted, right? You have someone here and it's <laughs> yeah, comfortable to have yeah. a judgment of that. And like, wait, what if I step And I had experience, uh, I've done the Anne with my father twice and um, which was wonderful. They're both on the YouTube. And I remember bringing my dad in to do it. And he, he said, Topaz, I don't get it. You know, you have these card games. Okay, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, what is she asking questions? Have a conversation What? And finally he came and we did the conversation and he says, this is amazing, Topaz. This is like, and I'm going to recruit here, but it's like, son, this is like sex. You can <laughs> talk about sex all day long, but you don't get it until you do it. And I think that he, for the audience, look, asking questions, have a deep conversation. Okay. But if you ask well-constructed questions, you're going to explore a different space in your relationship. And there are so many nutrients for you to feel that much better about being alive than there are when you ask the same rudimentary questions and you're in the same patterns. Yeah. And for me, I just, a few months ago, I did it with a good friend of mine, Justin. It's also on the YouTube. And me, who's done the questions, held the space, done this for 10 years, I had an incredible experience with my friend who I've known for 16 years. And it has shifted our relationship. And A, I had so much joy doing it. We laughed, we cried. We talked about things we never talked about before. And then- we now have a reference point to that conversation and it has elevated our con- our relationship. Yeah. And that is something that people have told me throughout the years about doing the and, and I didn't even get it until I did it myself with my good friend, Justin. <laughs> so I think that we should be aware that we're always answering questions, but we can control the questions we ask. We don't bring conscientiousness to that. So let's do that. When you're stymied and you're having a challenge, a personal challenge, for instance, if you can stop banging your head against the wall trying to solve a problem, just stop and spend all your energy creating 30 versions of the question. Yeah. And then choose the question that you really, that empowers you, that gives you energy. Like, that's the one I want to answer. And we talk about that in the end of the book. 
Yeah. I'm not, well, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but. No, I think I think you did. And I think there's an interesting piece here because you talk about these the, at the end of the book. And I kind of saw the end of the book as, you know what, these conversations. And I think this goes back to the part that you talked about. We only learn when we're in discomfort or we're going through that discomfort kind of component. And asking these questions isn't easy. At least, you know, my my take on this is mm -hmm. that to to that point, there's there's a bit of this that sometimes it's that crystal ball question. I, I don't know if I want to know the truth of some of these, right? I mean, if uh, we really get down to it, there can be some things that you learn about yourself that aren't necessarily the most welcoming kind of things that you can learn about yourself in, in, in answering these questions or having these questions asked of you. And so I think there's that, that last part of the book is kind of showcasing that, all right, so if we start going down this, this weird, you know, here's some help, help to get us out of that downward spiral or, or the difficulty that we're, we're dealing with. And again, I might be way, way off base on that, but your experience, you've had, you're, you're kind of outside, you're being able to ask these questions. H how does it change when it's just two people asking these questions without that camera person or the interviewer there? What are some of the things that you've seen or heard from people who have been doing this on their own and, and how does that change this? So we have card games. Mm -hmm. We have 12 editions for different kinds of relationships, friends, family, strangers, coworkers, long-term relationships. I mean, we have 12 different editions, so you can just play the card game. Uh, we also have an app where people can download it and ask these questions. What I get, I'll tell you two stories. One story is really moving, and we get this maybe not as dramatic, but we get this every week. And we share it on our Slack channel and our team because we're doing the work. We're not always in physical touch with the participants, but we get these messages and we share it within the team because it keeps us going. It's, it's, it's that echo back that tells us we're offering value to the world. So we got an email from a woman, a mother, who said, I mean, I can read it to you here, but in essence, she went on a college tour with her son. And at dinner, she had remembered she downloaded the app and they were having a very basic conversation similar to their normal pattern. So she pulled out the question on the app and three questions in, they were crying and having a deep conversation. Later that night, she, her son admitted to her that he was having suicidal thoughts and that he was having mental health issues. And so she wrote to us and she said, thank you. Because if it wasn't for the, your questions and the space that was created from that, I would never have had this conversation with my son. And mm -hmm. now I can help him. Let's not take things for granted. There's things under the surface there and there's a lot of energy there. And what happens when you, when you unearth, like sometimes we don't want to really look at things. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't think everything has to be painful. There's a lot of joy when you're, wow, you know what? Let me tell you why I love you and that we take for granted. And then you get that, you get that boost of energy and you're like, thank you. I've suspected that. I've always felt that. But hearing you say that reaffirms our relationship and it's beautiful and makes me teary eyed. I mean, that's why people pause in our videos when that question comes up because it's there, but they don't articulate it always. And there's a value there. But one thing that comes up for me is, and I wonder, why do we really, do we really, do we want to actually have real conversations? Do we actually want to dig deeper? Why? And what comes up for me, and I'm not saying it's the answer, what comes up for me is, my opinion is that sometimes we spend a lot of energy in holding up a facade, mm. a facade of comfort, a facade of a concept. We spend a lot of energy doing that. And then you're not actually changing what's the reality. Let me give a very simple example. 
when I realized that I was an asshole, I'm not saying this is Topaz. Well, well, yes. When I realized that I was an asshole, okay, I then stopped spending all my energy pretending that I wasn't and took all that energy on fixing that I was an asshole. Yeah. So how much in your relationships are you pretending and spending energy to pretend instead of taking the energy, going into it, changing it so that you have a more resilient, fulfilling, sustaining relationship? It gives you a greater sense of what it means to be alive. Yeah. These people that, you know, and I think that, and we have a loneliness epidemic yeah. right now, right? We know that. We know that social media is siloing us off, us off, giving a sense of these facsimiles of connection. And there are so many rich nutrients in the sense of reaffirming your, your own vibrancy and vitality when you can connect with another human, with another soul. And how do we do that? We create the space and ask well-constructed questions. And this is something that we're not taught really in life. You know, we're not really, and I think that um, that for me is like what I know is of value. And just to end on the last story I mentioned, I was going to say too, which is I lost touch with a very good friend of mine, 12 years. Finally, we caught up after 12 years. And as I was speaking to him, I was telling him, yeah, I made these cards. Question goes, wait, Topaz, wait, what Topaz? And we were on FaceTime. And he went into his bedroom and he pulled out the box. And I have a picture <laughs> on my phone here of, and I, that's one of the biggest, forget the Emmy, forget it. That is one of the biggest compliments. He goes, Topaz, I was having a hard, my wife and I were having challenges. Her best friend said, Trey, go out and buy this game and play it with your wife. It'll help. And this helped. And I can't believe, it's in my bedroom. I can't believe, you know, you were a part of that. And that to me is one of the greatest compliments. It's like a value. These card games create value for people because it creates the space to have a conversation you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Right? That's a beautiful story. And it, it's a great way to sort of articulate this point about the kinds of benefits that, that people can get through going through, going through the whole 12 questions, going through them in order, getting prepped. Are you worried that there's any misconceptions? Are there sort of things that people don't take away from the book that would actually enhance and their experience and their engagement with the questions? Like, do they, do they sort of misunderstand something or, or, or too quick to rush into just, oh, I've got the book, now I'll just sit down and I'm going to sit down with my wife and just ask the questions. I had certain family members who, oh yeah, I've done, I did the 12 questions. We did it. So check, check, check mark. We did it in 10 minutes, not a big deal. <laughs> so for me, that's just a missed opportunity. Yeah. You, and, and, but, but at the same time, is it really because, let's say, they're having a conversation, the question comes up, they both are thinking what they would really say. Mm. They both say what they're not seeing on the surface, and they both know they're skimming the surface. And they both know they could go deeper in what they think, what they, maybe the, they think the other person is going to say, and they don't go there. They know you know what you're not saying. Yeah. You know where you're not going. And then the question is, do you want to live in a relationship like that? Yeah. And you, you can, the answer could be, yeah. The answer could be, I don't want to dig deeper with this person. Okay, that's fine. But you know it. You know, you've, 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 you've had the conversation with yourself. And that's also of immense value, right? Yeah. And then you can choose who and why do I want to go deeper? Who and why do I want to lean into discomfort and have these conversations? Because in essence, when you do, you're nurturing that relationship. You're putting water on it. You're putting rich nutrients that's going to make that relationship more resilient and offer you more fulfilling sense of what it, vitality of what it means to be alive because this reflection of this other person in your life is reflecting more vibrantly to you. Yeah. And you to them. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because it, even going back to the the your answer from the last question, talking about groups of friends, I have certain groups of friends that I would definitely like be asking these questions, wanting to get to know them more and them to know me, and feeling deepening that relationship and feeling like this would be a good opportunity. Tim and I would be, you know, some of those friends that I would feel mm-hmm. really comfortable doing. I have other sets of friends where no way I, I have no desire. I, I, I know you as an, enough as a person, you're good to go play golf with, you know, a couple times a year, but that's, that's fine. And for it's not everybody that I play golf with, that's not all of you. So just so you know, that. <laughs> so, yeah. but, but this idea that, <sighs> that there are certain, certain individuals that this feels like it is more appropriate to. And there, there are relationships in our lives that are more of that surface that you, you, you don't have, we don't have the time. We don't have the energy. We don't have the wherewithal. Would sure. you agree with that? Or would you say, you know what? No, there's, there's value in doing this, even with some of those people who, you know, maybe aren't as uh, in your life in, in the same manner as, as yeah. others. I think first, one thing with my team and I, when we do the end, we don't have any judgments. Mm-hmm. We cannot have an agenda. Sometimes when I train my team to hold the space for the end and I, I get a report at the end of the day, you know, it's not really happening. It's not working. It's not, they're not having, that's because you have an agenda. It is, it is what it is. Mm. So if you're going to have this conversation, it is what it is. And that's one of the beautiful things is they don't, and one of the rules is you don't have to respond. Mm. You just take 10 seconds and take a pass. You have to enable everyone to be who they are and to respond in the way that they are. And there's also this idea of emotional articulation. We have these feelings. Putting words to them is a practice. It's, it's a skill. Not everyone has it, but maybe doing it more and more, you get better at it. Watching the and videos, you see, wow, look, that's a really incredible way to articulate an emotion or idea. Okay, that gives me a sense of I can learn from that. By, doing the pra- by having the opportunity to practice emotional articulation, you can then articulate your emotions in a richer way. But not everyone needs to do that. And sometimes, you know, articulation is one form of expressing love. So is presence. So is acts of service. I, I don't have a judgment on how it should be. And we avoid that. I think this is just one practice. It's one opportunity for people to have. And I think for anyone listening who says, I usually, there's one person in the relationship who says, I really want to do this. And they have to drag someone else who doesn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Fair enough. When you drag them in, when you bring them in, then once you start, you must allow them to be who they are. Because that is the only way for them to step forward. If you're, in, if you're trying to get them to respond in a certain way, you're actually not creating the space for them to respond in the way that is true to them. And that is actually the beauty of it, is, is not that the response or the conversation is done in a certain way. It doesn't have to go deep. It doesn't, it's that it is true to, it's like a thumbprint. It is unique to your relationship. And now you get to be in the uniqueness of your relationship. And I think, so that, that's what comes up for me is that, you know, we also have an amusing deck, which is fun, wacky questions. Great. That's, you know, you could play that. So not all the conversations are deep, vulnerable. We have to cry in this, but it's an opportunity to create a space to explore a new room in your relationship that you haven't done before. And I think that's imperative. It's an option. Do you want to go into that room or not? You don't have to, but you can. I love that. I If it's okay, I'd like to find out about how all this might work in a world where 
you end up spending a year on a desert island and you have two musical artists that you could take with you. Oh. And, we're, and we're creating space for, for music here. <laughs> and you get to choose which two musical artists. The entire catalog, by the way, we actually had a guest recently say, well, I want, I want this one band, but only in this configuration. I don't want anything else. I'm like, you don't have to, you don't have to go there, but if you want to, you can. <laughs> yeah. After what, the guitarist uh, died, anything with the new guitarist, no way. We don't want any right, of that. Right. You know? So I'm going to, I'm going to tweak it a little bit. Cause I, you, one version of your question is, would you take the musician or the sports person? Yep. Yes. Yeah. So on a desert Island, I would take Bob Marley. Because okay. I would really like to talk to him to see about his oh, political oh, you ideas. You want to have a conversation with him? Yeah. Well, I, I can't. Yeah. I used to play the drums. I couldn't keep a beat to save my life. So, okay. was your question to have a conversation with them, or you had questions? Who would I want to jam with? Let's play both. Actually, let's play both. Uh, first is who would you just want to talk to, and then who would you actually want to play with? How about okay, that? I talked to would be. I would want to talk to Bob Marley, and I wouldn't want to talk to Muhammad Ali. Oh, I want to have a conversation with those two gentlemen. I think their views of humanity and our responsibility to community and society and our place in it, I think is epic. I think those two, I think they're heroes of mine, especially Ali. In terms of jamming with, my brother Sapphire is a brilliant musician. And when he's in the studio, he's he's incredible. He's such a great collaborator. I can't play, but I love playing. I just love hearing him jam. And then I would bring in John Coltrane. Oh. Because oh. John Coltrane, he was a dream. So what's interesting is my brother Sapphire is 18 years younger than I. And when I was in my teens, my dream, one of the questions I used to ask, or even in one of our decks is, if you were to die and go to heaven, and heaven was a place that you were like in one state forever, indefinitely, what would oh. your heaven be? And my heaven would be basically being John Coltrane in a tuxedo, in front of an audience I can't see because they're silhouetted against a large, you know, the, the, the light is on me. And I'm playing purely from my soul into the saxophone. Uh. And ironically, when my brother was born and he like played the accordion, he became an incredible maestro of the saxophone. So I would want my brother Sapphire and John Coltrane for me just to watch those two jam and me to, you know, try to like, Keep along. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that, that, yes. that would be, yeah, that would be bliss. Yeah, yeah, I I, I could easily imagine that. Okay, yeah. okay, I'm gonna uh, we're we're going down a whole different path here. Muhammad Ali, you have a conversation. You only get to ask Muhammad uh, one question. What is that one question? I would ask him the question. That's a good one. That I asked Daniel Day Lewis when I was working on the set of There Will Be Blood. Okay. And he's a very nice guy. And I was a PA and I got to spend a little time with him. So I, I asked him and I would have Ali is like, why do you do what you do? Which is ironically, basically your podcast. <laughs> why do humans do what they do? But I, and when I asked Daniel Day-Lewis, he thought for a moment and he said, he looked up and he said, curiosity. <sighs> and so I would love to know why Muhammad Ali does what he does. Because I don't know if it would be curiosity. No. Maybe it would be something else. But yeah. that's, that was Daniel Day-Lewis' answer. And I think, why do, why do you do what you do? Yeah, That's a fascinating and inspirational comment that he made, a response to your question. Yeah. Curiosity. It's not what I would have. I mean, it, he's an actor, right? I mean, that, that's his job. But, but that's, I think that's a perfect answer for an actor. He, you know, he was curious about why this person does this. Why does this person feel that? What does this person react? I think, because this is when he just 
kind of went to be a cobbler in Italy and learned how to make shoes for a while and then mm. went to do gangs and then came back. And, and um, I think he's one of the greatest. He's, he's just, one, he's a, that guy's amazing. Well, he's and I think it's, it's probably what makes him such a good actor. Right. I mean, you, you could get and you could put a hundred actors in a room, ask them all the same question. And you're, you know, there, there might be a couple that are curious, but you know, a lot of them are going to be for other reasons, but that curiosity is, is really, if you think about it, it's, it's getting into that person. Why are they doing this into the character? And, and that probably is what drives a lot of his great acting ability mm-hmm. And into why he is the the actor that he is. So I think that's really cool. How about you? How about you, Topaz? Why do you do what you do? Um, I'm 47. I was a filmmaker for like 15, 20 years. And then this, there's something, I'm not sure I like humans, but I love humanity. And I, maybe I don't like, maybe I don't like humanity, but I love humans. There's something that I get off on that I love when I'll just say it's humanity. When we, when you have this sense of connection, when we're doing something together and we are affirming that moment of being alive, you know, it goes to when you're, when I lived in New York for 18 years and we're walking down the street and you, you know, you see something incredible on the street, just some incredible synchronicity or moment of pigeon flies against the backlight of a sunlight and you're walking down the street and you look over and someone else is also walking at the same pace and you both saw the same thing and you both look at each other a stranger and you both go, yeah, wow, that was amazing. Without words, but you both know and you're like, mm. that moment, that sense of or what used to happen when you're in a taxi cab before Uber and all that, where you actually spoke to the taxi cab driver and you both harked on something that was a fundamental truth and you're like oh my god this stranger right or that co-conspiracy you have with your partner you're at a dinner party someone says something you both look at each other because you have to share the same opinion that no one else does but you both know it that sense of connection that sense of those are the things that get me off i love playing soccer but my favorite sport was when i wrote i went to oxford to study philosophy for a year and I rode there and that was my, I loved rowing. Why? Because you're there in the boat. You barely see, you don't, you can't see your other teammates. Your back is to, you know, and you're just the faith that you're all rowing as hard as you can at the same pace, in the same rhythm, in the same goal. I just love that idea. And I just, that's maybe what so maybe what I do is what I do is a pursuit of that sense mm. of that oneness between us as humanities. And I just get off on when we are all together, sharing something together that then makes us greater than what we are singularly. Every moment is once in a lifetime. I'm trying to teach my son to pay attention to the light, he pays attention to the light. He knows that this moment is special because this is all, all these things had to happen in order for this moment to occur. But that's happening in all our lives, every moment without any light. We're having this beautiful conversation. Both of you guys are holding space. I'm super grateful for you guys to to do the work that you're doing and and create this opportunity for me to express myself. So thank you both. Topaz, thank you so much for being a guest on Behavior Groups today. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Topaz, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our loving brains. Oh, that's just so sweet. You know what? Okay. 
So we <laughs> were laughing about this. It's our St. Valentine's Day episode, but yes, Valentine's Day, as I like to call it, you know, th- th- this, the insights are not about like just a romantic loving relationship. This is about helping people have conversations. And what Topis is doing here is uh, it's about any type of relationship where you feel affinity, caring for that person, a family member, a close friend, even a a co-host on a podcast, you know, Um, those (laughs) are the types of things that, you know, I think this is really about. It's not just that romance, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Did you admit the podcast co-host thing reluctantly? There was, <laughs> I just wasn't sure if you were being completely, I guess maybe maybe you were being completely authentic with your reluctance. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know if there was, uh, there was maybe just reluctance of sharing that out to with, the world. With you know, it's people like, in 140 you know, countries. Yeah, yeah, you know, two guys having a conversation, you know, it's like, hey, yeah, whatever, dude, you know, no. <laughs> Tough sometimes, but no. I mean, I think this is, I think this is really important when we think about this, is that the the lessons learned, the ideas that are brought forth by Topaz and from what we talked about with him, not do not just apply to those sexual romantic kind of you know wife girlfriend boyfriend husband partner you know right. relationships they are indeed for your kids for your parents for your brothers and sisters and for your friends and even like i said you know co-host on podcasts and different <laughs> things like that you know Okay, agreed. Uh, and nicely pointed out. The first thing that I want to bring to the table is his point of stop looking for answers. What, this, I, I, so tell me what you're going to say here. What's the answer for this this question? Yeah, <laughs> see, this is the way our brains work. Is like we just want to have the. We, we'll I we'll definitely going to get to this in bigger psychological form, but it is hard to listen and. Uh, or ask a question and not have an expectation about what the answer is. Like yeah. we know enough about the expectation effect to know that unconsciously, if not consciously, we are going into virtually every situation with some kind of expectation. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great so far. No, well, all right. So no, I mean, but, but that's, uh, so what I just did there, right. Is, is not actually what we need to be doing. It's not, it's listening to you. I'm listening to you. Yeah. Is different than even I hear you. I hear you closes it off. I'm listening to you keeps it open. And there is a there's a difference there. This idea of active voice and heard kind of is uh, all right, we're done. Right? Yeah. I'm listening is it's still open. And I think that is one of the big pieces that that we are that I think Topaz brings out. So he does. And it's and there's good psychological foundations for this, right? Uh, that we know that listening involves two important cognitive processes. It involves attention and processing. And that's very, very different than than just the, oh, I hear you. Yeah. Right. To pay attention and to process things means that we're actually engaged in something. So we've got these two cognitive processes at play. And listening also involves a behavioral process, and that's expression. 
And uh, Hanny Collins in a 2022 paper uh, noted really nicely about how honest, high quality conversational listening is most effectively conveyed and detected using verbal expressions of listening, in part because these cues cannot be faked. Like our bullshit meter is pretty good. And if we are the person who's talking and we're looking at someone who is listening and it looks to us like they're kind of faking it, we there's a good chance that we could be right. So this is the kind of thing where we need to be involved on an authentic basis. We need to be, again, from a cognitive perspective, it's about attention and processing. And from a behavioral perspective, it's about expressing authentically. And that's that's where we stop looking for answers. That's when we're really just in the moment and we're asking we're asking ourselves to participate and be present. I think that that's, that's kind of one of the key things. You know, for, I'm for sorry. I, I wasn't paying oh, attention. Yeah, you, of course not. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I, I'm, I thank you. I think that's really important is this idea that we know, I, I mean, it is more than just the words that we say, right? And it's the, we are able to, as you said, understand by the, the visual cues, the by how it feels, all those different things. And there's um, done work with organizations where I've coached um, and done workshops on communication and talk about the sender-receiver model, this idea that as a sender, we have a concept. I want to express something to you. And in this situation, you know, I want to express right. how I feel about you as a concept. I have to encode that, right? I have to encode that and and create the words or the way that I'm going to express and communicate that to you. And then I go ahead and I do that. But what always happens, and this is the a big piece about like, we'll get into this next part about creating the space, right? Is that there, you send a message, you say, I so appreciate you and all that you do and everything else, whatever that would message would be. You've encoded this feeling that you're trying to convey. But then there's noise. And, and noise can be physical noise. It can be the background in the restaurant. It's too loud. You're having a nice romantic dinner, but, you know, there's clinking and clanking and everybody and they're like, what? What did you say? You know, and, and you're, that message gets, you know, diluted because of that noise. Now, it's not always physical noise either. There is what's going on in our heads. There's going, there's the idea of, you know, what am I feeling? Am I tired? Am I hungry? Different pieces. That changes how I cognitively process or decode that right. encoded message. And so I think the really important piece, and this also goes back to we're searching, you know, we want the answer. And so even as the person who's receiving the question or the statement, we're looking for an answer instead of listening just to what they're saying. So that processing is different. And then, you know, in, in the sender receiver model, there's a feedback loop in most instances and how you respond. Are you looking at me? Are you not? The way, are you rolling your eyes? Are you twiddling your thumb? All those different body cues that go, oh, that person got it or they didn't get it. And I think that's an interesting piece. Sorry. So I just yeah. went off on my little tangent there. That, that was great. And, and just one more thing, you brought up framing and it just makes me think about, there's been so much research on how we respond to questions the way that they're framed, right? And, and I get back to the, the question of how old do you think you're going to be when you die versus how long do you think you're going to live? 
Now, both of those should get to the same number, but we know that the answers are very, very different. Right. Right. When we're asked, how, how long do you think you'll live? That gives an, an answer that tends to be a little bit more optimistic than the, how old are you going to be when you die? That tends to be a little more pessimistic, yeah. you know, a little shorter. And so the framing of these questions makes a big damn difference. Right. And particularly as you think about this if, as love, right? So, you know, how much do you love me versus, you know, how do I express my love towards you? Or how do you, you know, how do you receive that love? Again, very different kind of responses that we get and very right. different, you know, elements. We put, you know, energy into this, right? Um, there's this element of, you know, if we can ask, we can frame the question right, we can ask it, and we're open to listening as opposed to trying to close this, right? It's that uncertainty piece. Yeah. Of, yeah. You know, we need to li we get, let's live in that uncertainty to make sure that we're getting all of the feedback that we need as opposed to just, I want to hear, this is what I want to hear. I want you to say, I love you, or this is this particular answer, and I'm going to, you know, pose my questions to get that answer. That's, that's very different conversation yeah. than one that's just like being open. And knowing that you're going to, that all of us are going to have an expectation, conscious or unconscious about this, at least being sensitive to this can hopefully allow us to say, okay, when I go into this conversation, I'm, I really want to not just create the space. I really want to keep myself open to the answers. Mm. Um, and, and so to set myself up for success. Yeah. You know, compassionate curiosity, right? As yes. we go back. Kwame comes, Christian. Comes yeah. back to that time and time again. Yes. All right. Um, so the one other piece that he talked about that I, again, I think we, as everyday humans that we are, often don't do a very good job of is in these types of conversations we're not creating the right space, right? We're not creating, this yeah. goes back to, you know, the sender receiver model I talked of, you know, actually a romantic dinner is, is usually a pretty good time to have some of these conversations. But if it's in a really bustling and loud and crazy restaurant, you know, you I, might get frustrated because you, you know, like, what, what did I, I'm sorry, I can't, or missing things and misinterpreting things and all of those kind of things. And, and again, I think you, we were prior to the, the episode you were going on, you, you know, you, you don't get in and, you know, start asking, you know, honey, do you love me? Like when they first come in the door after a long day at work right, and they're exhausted right. and pissed off at traffic, right? That's, yeah. Be smart about this, folks. Be smart, right? <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. You know, I also just want to say that when it comes to creating a space, you know, reach, researchers have, have looked at this and it seems that we learn better when we're in a space that feels safe for open and honest conversation. And if that is part of the goals of our relationship is to learn from each other, then let's create a safe space. Let's yeah. create a very safe environment. Uh, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that good researchers should never do. And I know this isn't necessarily 
you know, the book isn't really based on research. I mean, it is because it's based on all the the experience that he had. And so I, I don't want to ever discount that. But yeah, like what? Uh, 1,200, 1200 conversations. They had. Yeah. And yeah. a variety of other feedback and, you know, anecdotal pieces and different aspects of that. But this idea of having that safe space, loving conversations, definitely work conversations. You know, if you have to have a tough conversation, not even a tough conversation, just a a conversation with your coworkers, uh, the people that you work with in your church, uh, com- you know, another social service community thing, right? Oftentimes it's like we just, it's like flying through the hallway and we, oh, I just see this person and I want to ask them that question. Or... I'm going to just send off a quick email and ask them this really important piece that we need to think about and have maybe have a conversation on. Rethink that. Rethink the space in which you are asking those questions because that's going to create a different connection between you and and different responses. All right. Yeah, well, well said. The last kind of big things that I wanted to touch on for me in the in the grooving session was that believe that Topaz said, our brain is built to give answers. And just specifically, there's some really great research on this. I, I, I Actually, I'm going to quote him here. He said, if you ask the question, why do we fight so much? Well, okay. Is that really a well-constructed question? He said, your brain is built to give you answers. It's like the dog that chases the stick and you throw the stick and the dog's going to chase it regardless of where you throw the stick. Yeah. I love that analogy because that is exactly what our brain's going to do. We don't, if, you know, I, I have a dog, my, Katie and I have a dog. We throw a, a couple of balls out into the yard and the dog chases the ball that's moving. He won't go after the balls that are, that are out there that are his, like his favorite balls, but he's going to chase the ball that is moving. That's the one that occupies his attention. And so we, by the kinds of questions that we ask, we're going to, frame and direct where the stick is going right and yeah so, we so have where you throw that about this where you throw that ball is where chili's going to go exactly. you could throw the ball in the backyard or you could throw the ball into a busy street right and he would follow it and he would follow it and so mm-hmm. you know he might you know be just perfectly fine going through that busy street but the likelihood of him getting hit Versus in the busy street versus in your backyard, vastly different. Right. So throw your ball or throw your stick at the in the right spot, right? So it's the, don't ask the question that is going to take you into the busy street. Yeah. Ask the question that's going to take you into the nice relaxing backyard with your beautiful trees and the nice grass and your comfy cushion chairs <laughs> of course and your hot tub of course your hot tub in your backyard you know? that's a, which which is a good place to have those those loving conversations this really also brought up for me uh some comments that danny kahneman made that i think is a really wonderful thing to keep in mind and kahneman said that in order to answer a difficult question we often answer a related easier question so it's a substitution thing that our brains do automatically. Yeah. And we have to be con- careful about that, especially in these conversations when the questions might be really challenging. And we have to really stop and think, 
wait a minute, am I answering really the heart of this question, the difficult side of this question, or is my brain just going to the easier answer? Right. And and I, Kahneman talked about this as he said, he, he and Amos labeled this judgment by heuristics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some heuristics is like, and I'm quoting here, some heuristics are applied deliberately, but many are applied automatically. And that is the key piece. So the substitution of answering the difficult question with an easy question is done again, heuristically, right? We don't, we're not necessarily conscious that I'm doing this. Sometimes as, as right. Danny said, it's deliberate, but oftentimes, and probably I would argue most times it's, it's, it's a subconscious automatic, a system one response as opposed to system two as, as Danny would talk about it. And I think it's really interesting. And you go back to some of our other conversations, you know, we had Jonah Berger and the concrete language versus abstract language yeah. and different pieces. Well, what does our mind go to? It goes to that immediate, like if you ask about our relationship, where does my brain go? It goes to the vivid, immediate, you know, heuristic of what right. happened yesterday or the, you know, last week versus looking out over the long term of, of seven years of doing this podcast, of 15 years of being friends, you know, and so... Yeah, 20 um, years of being married to someone, right? Oh, I wasn't married to you for 20 years, but yeah, no. I was just going on that. But <laughs> just, okay. yeah. No, but it, I get, you know, but that that's a really important piece as we think about the way that our brain searches for answers. And it is a natural piece. And filling in that tough answer with an easier uh, question, right, is what we do as well. So, yeah. So this is to say we need to sit down, sit back, relax, get comfortable, answer the well-constructed questions authentically. Yeah. And and be open to listening and really trying to understand with yep. some compassionate curiosity what that other person is saying in that sender receiver model. As a receiver, you have a job to decode that message in the most and best way. And so really be working on trying to understand, you know, what this person is asking in this question. Same thing when you give that answer for the other person, you know, you have to do it. All right. A couple things though. All right. We've kind of, let's finish that, right? We're done with that. Mm, okay. A okay. couple other things. What else do you have in mind? Topaz had these amazing, great lines that I just, I, you know, you wrote a couple down here. I think we just, I, they're, they're wonderful. My favorite. And I, I wrote this down myself. Just like an image is worth a thousand words, an emotion is worth a thousand thoughts. Oh, it, it's just going up worthy. on my freaking wall, you know? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> or, or how about the path of growth? is lit by your fears. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's just... yeah uh, the body is the hardware for the software that runs through our system. These are just lush. Yeah. Couple more. All good. right, you, you, you grab a couple more. Um, okay, I'd say, uh, how about let's bring listening into the body because the body is a repository of emotional memories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
All right. How do we create new grooves and new connections? Uh I love this already, right? How do you create new grooves and new connections? We have to listen to different parts of our body. We respond in a different manner. Yeah. Yeah. We have, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, we, we have to listen with this, to different parts of our body in yeah. order to find those new grooves okay. and new, new connections. I'm throwing okay. you a Louie here too. So um, I was so impressed with this, with a, just our conversation with Topaz and, and kind of everything. He had talked about the and, this uh, book, mm-hmm. but it's also this series of cards, basically, that you can buy a box of cards of questions, questions, right? right? And so they have ones for relationships, like, you know, loving relationships, you know, friends, different pieces. I actually went out and bought the family one. And now, Tim, I know you're not my family, um, but I'm going to, I'm I'm posing some questions to you from the and family edition. I I picked out the ones as to how do you describe me and our family to others since you don't, um, maybe you do, maybe you describe, Oh, that Kurt Nelson and his family. You should (laughs) see what they're like. Yeah, there you go. Um, I've blog posts on that. Or list our family members and their corresponding spirit animal. You know, you could probably, you could probably go through and, you know, you know my family well, but I've already, and, I've already done that in social media posts for everybody in my family. So, yeah. Kurt is <laughs> no. that, Kurt is the, his spirit animal is a spider. He's you know, <laughs> creepy crawly up in the corner, spinning his web. No. All right. All right. No. Here, here, here you go. Um, all right. First question. You really are. When okay. do I embarrass you the most? When do you embarrass me the most. So that means I have to, of all the things that you embarrass me with, I have to pick out the one thing that's the most. <laughs> is, is that right? Yes. Yes. The most embarrassing thing that I do, not just all of them. I mean, that would be a list. We could, our, our listeners would be listening to this podcast for, you know, a day or two of yeah. if you listed. So just the most. Well, I don't. I don't think that you embarrass me. So this is, uh, it's a hard question for me to answer because, and I'm not trying to just dodge it, but I don't feel embarrassed by you. I mean, like you said, we've known each other for 15 years. We've been doing this podcast for seven years. It's, we have a lot of time together and I don't, I've never felt embarrassed. No, Um, even when I, even when I dance, even (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what about some, when i do that little your, cha-cha-cha kind of yeah. thing you know uh, not maybe some of the macrame you know things that you created were embarrassing but i've never created macrame <laughs> okay. since the 1970s oh, yeah. in okay. uh home economics class of <laughs> junior high home like macrame no i don't know uh, right. okay i'm gonna Crush me with any others? I'm no, sorry. I, don't I have think I think we've ruined this already, and oh, sorry. I won't. I won't put you on the spot. This isn't necessarily the best space. How about that? This, right. right. We know that there's going to be thousands of people listening in 140 countries to w- what we have to say, 100, and 190 countries. Tim, let's get 190. This right. countries. Yeah. Okay. No, we don't have 190 countries, do we? Many. We have, but that's um, yeah, right. That's that's part of the part of creating a space. Yeah. So, okay. All right. So what tips do you have uh, based upon Topaz and the research that you and I have done afterwards? What some additional tips 
on creating these good conversations that get deep and, you know, get you to better understand and relate and feel loved. Big one for me is slow down. That, that, that's a big one. Like we can't just get our best conversations at rapid pace. You know, there's a, there's a time and, and there are things to accomplish with some of our conversations that need to move at a, at a speedy pace. Come on, Tim, let's hurry up. We got to wrap this question up. No, precisely. But if you want to have a relationship deepening on a conversation, you've got to slow down. Okay. What's, what's another tip? Topaz talked about distinguishing between discomfort and being unsafe. And I think that that gets underplayed a lot. I think that we oftentimes fail to, it, it's sort of like the, the difference between, um, you know, having that sense of being uh, in a risky situation versus an uncertain situation. Yes. Our bodies really can't easily tell the difference. It's a cognitive thing that we have to say, whoa, whoa wait, wait a minute. It's not, it's not actually risky. It's just uncertain. Yeah. So, you know, and, and in this case, discomfort and, and a lack of safety tend to feel the same way. But I think that we have to dig a little deeper and say, well, wait a minute, cognitively speaking, it's not actually unsafe. I'm in a, in a, in an uncomfortable situation, but it's not unsafe or vice versa. If that's, it's that, if that's the issue. Right. And, and oftentimes I think we fear that discomfort, but going through that discomfort leads to some of these real mm-hmm. wonderful breakthroughs and insights. Yeah. And if we don't distinguish between uncomfort and unsafe, we might avoid or stop or limit yeah. those conversations because I'm feeling discomfort. And discomfort is part of the human condition. And it's something that we we, we shouldn't avoid. Many, many people do. And I think that's that we can... We need Jonathan Haidt on to talk through all sorts of different pieces, but you know that's a whole different piece. But I yeah. think if we can move and understand when things are just dis- this is discomfort, it's not unsafe. I don't like it, but we need to move through this because it'll mm-hmm. get to a better spot at the other end. That's a really important distinction. Yeah. Do you have? Do you no, have? No. What's your last one? I know you got you I, got. Three I, hands I've, I've I've got one more. Yeah. Uh, listen with your whole body. And I thought that this is, it's a little of the woo-woo side, but, you know, there is some epigenetic evidence that we experience the world in more than just our, our senses and more than just the cognitive thing. Um, our body has memories, like we, re, like we remember physical and emotional things differently. And so let's listen with our whole body. Let's engage our entire body uh, when we're in, a, in the listening position. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a really important piece here. You talked about senses, right? It, and we do, I mean, we we just had that conversation um, with uh, drawing a blank on their names again. We'll put it in the show notes as we always do because Kurt's memory is, is being shot. This idea that we need to experience our senses and the more that we can focus in on all of our senses, um, the more in the moment that we can be. And right. Right. in this situation, what I took from you know the whole body listening is this concept that if we can listen with all of our senses being activated, this idea of 
looking at them, of listening acutely to their words, of breathing in the smells around us, of any touch that we're doing. All of those factors help us interpret and and understand. And also in when we're sending messages, we need to understand that. I mean, touch is amazing when we're asking, you know, these questions, whether it be holding yeah. somebody's hand or just a shot, you know, a, a soft touch on the on the arm, the way that you look at somebody, are you avoiding their gaze? Are you looking at them lovingly? You know, what are you what are you feeling? Hugs are huge in communication, right? And yeah. so we need to make sure that that's where I took that body piece. So absolutely. Um, anything else that you want to add? Uh, Topaz is the epitome of an accidental behavioral scientist. And I know at the beginning, when we were starting off, we had multitudes of those on the show. And I think, you know, for, for us, we should, we should probably get back to having more of those because what it really shows is that look, you don't have to go and get your master's degree or a PhD in this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, you listeners out there, you are accidental behavioral scientists. If oh. you just pay attention, you know, if you just notice what's mm -hmm. going on around you and why people behave the way they do, that's what it is. So, And if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that that could be right up your alley. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Let's wrap this up. I know we want to give uh, slow down and give time, but man, yeah. we've taken up a lot of time. So cool, cool conversation. And I'm really glad we talked with Topaz. Me too. It's really great to hear from the accidental behavioral scientists. And Topaz is really careful and thoughtful observer of the human condition. It made it much more interesting to talk to him than just someone who had one idea. He had lots of ideas because he's really thoughtful and engaged. And and he's, you know, the, just the experience of living through these in a very purposeful way of the interviews that he's done and the conversations that he's observed and just making note, right? And I think that's yeah. the important piece too, is when you are an accidental behavior scientist, it's because you're purposeful and you're paying attention and you're doing all those things. All right, before we go, we want to, remind you that we're doing this little series thing um, coming up on the, what's yeah. it? It's the, it's the, um, his, the, the history, the, the, the history of behavioral economics. And it's uh, called, they thought we were ridiculous and it drops on February 26th of this year, 2024. So please uh, check it out, share it with your friends. All that. All that, please, please do. Uh, check out all five episodes for that matter. And in the meantime, we hope that you take some of these suggestions to slow down, distinguish discomfort from a lack of safety, and listen with your whole body. And we use these tips to go out and find your groove.